Hello, welcome to Keys for SLPs, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com, exploring keys for speech language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, SLP and certified orofacial myologist experienced in rehab, outpatient, school, and private practice settings. As a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning, I'm excited to discuss information to help you excel as a professional. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals and caregivers to discuss practical therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field of speech-language pathology as we discuss a wide variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Welcome to Keys for SLPs. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines. Today, we welcome Jennifer Gray. Jennifer Gray is a certified speech-language pathologist with over 20 years of experience treating those with speech, language, and feeding delays and disorders. She has spent the last 12 of those years specializing in communication and feeding for those with intellectual disabilities and motor speech disorders. Jennifer owns and operates companies offering consulting and direct services, including early intervention and private practice for infants, children, teens, and adults through traditional and teletherapy settings. Her experience working in universities, public schools, private practice, and early intervention has led her to seek more effective therapeutic approaches for young children with moderate to severe intellectual and motor speech needs. She currently trains therapists, caregivers, and educators to use methods that work, teaching courses and speaking at local, state, and national conventions. Jennifer continues to seek and develop innovative and evidence-based practices to ensure functional outcomes for educational, social, and independent living success. Welcome, Jennifer. Hi, thank you. That always sounds so long. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's great to see you again. I had the privilege of moderating your two-hour video course earlier this year at speechtherapypd.com, and you spoke about using strengths and weaknesses of those with Down syndrome to improve speech clarity. During that presentation, you discussed working with people with Down syndrome across the lifespan. And that course covered a lot of ground, so I thought it would be helpful to invite you back to focus on adults with Down syndrome. This is a population that is very near and dear to my heart, so I am thrilled that you are joining Keys for SLPs today. Thank you very much. I haven't spoken much about adults with Down syndrome yet, and really my experience is kind of recent with that population, more the older teenagers coming into adulthood and then some in adulthood. I'm not sure why that is. It wasn't really purposeful and probably because I was in or am in still early intervention. And so for the last 12, 15 years, I was really looking mostly at prevention. Can we help little kids with Down syndrome kind of avoid some of the the things as they grow older so that we can have better success at younger ages. And so I was there for so long. But, you know, after you do this for a long time, (laughs) people come back or you start to get a lot of word of mouth that, hey, what she's doing is working. And so I've gotten a lot more experience recently with older teenagers and adults. And it's been really interesting. It's almost part of it's like starting over because there really isn't anything out there. And so most of my career has been (laughs) self-taught. in terms of trying to find anything that can either make what I'm doing 
better if it isn't working well, or just trying to find enough things out there that that I can use that are somewhat evidence-based. It's pretty limited. That makes sense. Why do you think that is? Why do you think there is such a dearth of research and information out there about this population? Since 1983, we have raised the lifespan age by almost 20 plus years. Really? I knew it was has increased, but that's incredible. Extremely. So all of a sudden, the reason this is such an important topic is all of a sudden we have a bunch of older teens and adults who are going to outlive their parents. Maybe for the, really the first time in such numbers. And so we haven't needed, this sounds terrible, but we haven't needed to really look at much for adults beyond medical needs. As our medicine gets better and as our research gets better, we are improving the life of these adults. And so now we're kind of going, "Uh uh-oh, or at least I am. Right. (laughs) Like, ooh, they need to get a job. And maybe they want to go to college and they're going to be interested in social relationships. And gosh, they're still really hard to understand. (laughs) Right, right. So the hard to understand is difficult. Everything else is wonderful. That there are so many more opportunities for our people that we're treating. Yes. Every day you're seeing it. Well, I do because I'm looking for it. But it seems like every day there's something newer, better, exciting for people with Down syndrome. It's becoming very popular again, which is such a relief because, you know, 10, 12 years ago when I was really getting into this, there just wasn't much out there at all. Even in terms of what we were seeing in media or advertising or movies. And so we that flip has been made really quickly. And again, I still think that that's because we've improved our understanding of the disorder and improved their life because they aren't as ill anymore, if you will. So that the heart, we're able to really kind of came down to the heart when we were able to fix these children's heart really young or go in multiple times. Can you talk a little bit about that for our listeners who are not as familiar with what you're talking about? Most people with Down syndrome are born with one or two heart defects, basically holes in the heart. You know, we are all born with, you know, that hole there that kind of separates the ventricles, the atrium. And so they tend to be born with kind of a hole where it's just part of that Down syndrome diagnosis, not all the time. But what that does is obviously impacts the way that you can breathe, your energy levels, pretty much how your body responds and works, basically. And so once we started fixing that at really young ages, our children all of a sudden had more energy. They were clearer thinkers. They were able to get to milestones faster for you know, fine motor, gross motor, somewhat for cognition and speech. There's a lot going on there now for the first time. But really, speech has kind of been the hardest part for this population. And oddly, that's what I knew when I started, because every single parent told me the same story. And that's how I ended up coming to that speech clarity piece away from oral motor and feeding where I started, because it doesn't get better as quickly. And it changes and it gets really complicated with all of the things that an SLP has to address. Right. Um, and so now that we have some of those medical issues, and I'll talk a little bit about that too in, in, in just a bit, but 
all of those medical things that they have when they're little, they, you know, they kind of carry them forward. So we are still dealing with hypothyroidism. We're still dealing with maybe some heart issues, pulmonary issues. And then right now, what I see most of actually are GI issues. So a lot of this is as you get older, it's really starting to look a lot like some of the research coming out of autism, which in a way is kind of exciting because the the research and the therapeutic approaches for autism are amazing. And they got amazing really fast. I feel like we're kind of catching up to that with Down syndrome. It's the number one genetic disorder, but we've really ignored it. We've really discounted this population from the time they're born. And that's changing. And that's really exciting. And there's a lot less stigma over oh no, you had a baby with Down syndrome. This is terrible. That still happens. And you know, you've seen some of that in some other countries, but really it's shifting. We're like, hey, these kids can really give us something. And we all kind of know that, but they're not going to be cute forever. Um, And so just saying, oh, they're so cute. They're so cuddly. They're so nice. They're sweet. They're happy all the time. That's not really true, right? But as we get older, that tends to disappear in people's minds. It does. It, it, yes. And the happiness part can change as it can for anyone as they get older. So let's talk about adults with Down syndrome. Do they typically need speech therapy or speech and language therapy? And realistically, what improvements do you see can be made in adulthood? Yes, they usually always need speech and language therapy. I've never really seen someone with Down syndrome who wouldn't continuously need those services. I think breaks are good, but our adults, we there's some roadblocks to this, and I think we were talking about this at the end, but I'll come into it now a little bit, which is how do we see them? Where are they? So in what settings are they being seen? What is insurance like for these issues of speech and language and maybe even feeding in adults who have pre-existing conditions, right? Who might have been in therapy for 20 years. An insurance company looks at that and is like, well, I don't know if I want to give you more if it hasn't worked yet. And so there's still a lot of misconceptions about that. But yes, most do. Unfortunately, speech and language are not like riding a bike. It's more of a use it or lose it situation with our kids. I have not read that anywhere yet. That's just been my experience. And I'm a little nervous saying that because it sounds bad. That's okay. Why don't you just give us an example of a client? Because we're talking about what you've seen as a specialist in this field. So that's okay. I have about five currently that I'm seeing. And what started to happen was I was getting calls from parents saying, hey, I either saw you when they were little or they used to have really good speech. I mean, we, we, she used to be so gregarious and people couldn't understand her for the most part and the therapies worked. But now I don't know what's going on. All of a sudden we can't understand her anymore. And usually they'll come in and say, can you test her sounds? Can you see if she just, we need to work on her sounds again, or we need to do some of the oral motor stuff we did when they were little. And then I see them and it's really not that at all. But it is that change once they go from being, you know, that kind of happy elementary kid into junior high and high school, which isn't all that surprising because we're all kind of weird at those ages, right? There's a lot going on. (laughs) (laughs) I understand how that can go. I have a house full of teenagers myself. (laughs) Some days are more pleasant than others. (laughs) And so once I get to see these kids and we're coming in going, gosh, what's going on here? What is it about the speech signal that's getting worse? 
And then what are some of those language things? And it usually, I end up at this point, I'm trying to think of the five in my head and they range, right? So, I mean, I hate that we have to say this all the time, but they're all different, but they can range in really interesting ways in terms of they're hyperverbal, but you can't understand them. Their comprehensibility stinky, but oddly their intelligibility is not. So there's this weird difference between intelligibility and comprehensibility. And it's the comprehensibility part that we forget to look at. So the difference is intelligibility is how well do they say the sounds to make up the words, to make up the phrases, to make up the sentences. And we kind of get stuck there. But there's a lot of other things going on within the signal that's impacting comprehensibility. And they may not have a single RTIC error. And so I kind of am hoping to move people out of this idea that articulation and phonology, although those are very different, but it's not the sounds. That's usually not what's going on at all. And sometimes it's not even a language issue in terms of phonology. It's more of a hearing issue or a breathing issue, right? And so this can get quite complicated. But what I hope I want to kind of tell people today is about that comprehensibility part, What is it that's happening at these ages that's making them all of a sudden more difficult to understand again? And it's often not what it was. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll dig into that a bit. (laughs) So what are the signs of regression and how can we prevent it? So this is something I'd read about, I'd heard about, but never really seen until about maybe eight years ago. And then there was a span, I didn't see it. Now we're seeing it again. So we know that one of the reasons that research is filtering, that research is causing us to know more about Down syndrome is because of Alzheimer's. We know that as adults age, you know, we're all kind of in that category of dementia and it's just a natural progression, right? Where we have it genetically. With this population, this is scary to say, but it's almost guaranteed, And we don't know why. And once that was learned in the medical field and the research fields, it was like, oh my gosh, we need to look at this group because it might hold keys for the whole population. Why is this group more in danger of acquiring Alzheimer's disease and acquiring it very young? What is going on here? Why are they aging faster? And so the money there is kind of filtered down from that. And now that we know that that's there and we're learning more about it, we're more aware of it. And we're also talking more about that short-term memory piece as a part of language. And so all these language problems, you know, we're realizing aren't language problems in the sense that we work with little kids, but in the sense that chronic hearing loss throughout the lifespan and low muscle tone and issues like mouth breathing and sleep apnea and all these other things (laughs) that tend to build up, if you will, or change as the person ages. And as they age, we've started to see younger and younger changes like regression. And so regression, and it has fancier terms and it's in the handout, but a loss of skill. And when I saw the two first ones, it was so dramatic that I was like, oh my gosh, I got to figure this out. And I went online and sure enough, there it was, but I didn't know about it yet which was embarrassing. And so I immediately was talking to people at the children's hospital and saying, listen, this is what I'm seeing. I think you need to see this person. And sure enough, that person who I saw the very first time who went from a gregarious, fun, outgoing little girl to a very withdrawn, 
quiet, sullen teenager to the point, even loss of not just speech and language, but interests, like loss of personality almost. And if you read some of this stuff, it even uses the word catatonic sometimes. And so as I started to learn more about this and refer people, it turns out that, yes, this is a very real thing. And it might be related to that Alzheimer's process of the brain aging. But I'll warn you, I don't know that that's exactly true. I don't think we really know yet. But anyway, it is, we're starting to see it younger, which is exciting because maybe I can stop it before that. The glimmer of hope here, though, is (laughs) even with that first case, there are some drug treatments that are working really well. I'm not plugging drugs to look really out of my league, but it's using antidepressants. Some of the older SSRIs, even like Prozac, I mean, like your older class of drugs for for depression, we're finding is having a really big impact, plus looking at what's going on in their life and how engaged they are. And that's kind of where we come in. Right. And that leads us to our next topic, which is, do many of your clients have a lot of social relationships outside of their immediate family or their immediate community. Relationships that they didn't have when they were teenagers. You know, we as adults are constantly meeting people. What do you find with this population? It's not good. That's another reason parents will come to me. And sometimes they don't bring that up. But if I bring it up, it becomes, it's a very big point for these families. It's a very sad thing for these families. And and honestly, we're still trying to figure it out. But if you think about what you have to do to form friends, or even for you and I who don't know each other very well to have you we can have a two hour conversation with each other, not knowing each other, because we understand each other, just the words that we're saying. And for I mean, there's the speech piece, but also that processing piece, right? Our adults with Down syndrome, our kids with Down syndrome, it just takes them a little longer to, to kind of absorb what they're hearing, process it, and then respond. And that delay right there is really what is keeping our older people with Down syndrome away from being able to bridge friendships. So even with those who have like AAC devices, it can be even worse. But even speech where the particular case I'm thinking of the who I'm seeing right now is, you know, he just he wants to be in the group and he he engages and he wants to talk. But by the time he can respond to a topic, they've moved on. And that they've moved on phrase is one that I've heard over and over again. And so they have a lot of difficulty forming new relationships unless it's really forced, unless it's it's a big focus for the family. But in general, it's a problem. So what can we as SLPs do to facilitate those relationships? That's what I'm working on. (laughs) Here's what I've done. And I'm sure there's other people maybe listening who have better ideas and I would love to hear them. But one of the things I've always used is eating or cooking. I think it's because I came from a feeding background. But it's also a very social thing. It's also a very important skill for independence. And so I've done some groups. So can we do groups where not the group has always kind of got me in the beginning because I would just be like, this is silly. You don't form friendships because your parents put you in a group of people who have the same disorder you do. But that's what we've always done. Okay, we're all going to meet here. You don't know each other, but you're going to build friendships. And here we're all in a room and I want you to talk about this. 
that's not the way it works, <laughs> right? That's not it doesn't life. work that way for anybody. No, it works because you have shared interests. It works because you have shared experiences. That's how we build friendships. So how do we form a setting or an opportunity for kids to find friends with similar interests or similar experiences? School does that for a while. But one of the biggest, to go back to regression really quick and then bring me back, is that when high school is over, this is when regression really tends to hit because they aren't forced into social groups every day. And COVID has sped this up. So I get referrals every week saying, you know, are you doing in-person sessions? Are you, do you have any groups? They've regressed. They've been alone for all this time. And being alone is about the worst thing for this group at this age. It's the worst group for anyone at that age to be alone, especially when it's already hard. So coming back in, how can we create a situation where they make friends because it was a natural process of doing that? So eating is one of those things or cooking more likely is one of those things that I've tried that works okay. There's a lot there. It's hard because there's so much you want to go after and you also want to leave them alone at the same time. Exactly. Exactly. Well, tell us a little bit more about those cooking groups. How did you do it at your clinic? Did you go into someone's home? Did you do this? Was this a paid group where they paid to come to the group or is it a free service? How does that work? In the past, it's been free. I've tried to charge, but it gets really hard because <laughs> I don't take private insurance. I only take Medicaid and cash and it gets weird. But the ones I've done have either been in homes of the community or in my home. So the one I've done that I can't wait to bring back, and I'm trying to figure out better ways to do this so it's not at my house, but it's really hard to find a kitchen. I've looked. <laughs> Where are we going to all meet and learn to cook and eat together? But when we first did it, I'll try to make this fast because I think I tell this story all the time, but you know, we got everybody here. Parents were here, but they were in the other room. And we explained what we were going to do. We were going to make a sandwich. We had all the gluten-free stuff. We had all the dairy-free stuff. We had all the regular stuff. We explained the ingredients. It was all there. We had the table set up so it would be in smaller groups. I think we had about eight or 10 of us in this one. And then we were like, okay, let's go. And almost everyone in the group turned around and said, mom. And we all froze like, okay. And the mom just went whoosh because that's what was happening at home. We didn't even think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, we, were kind, we had to kind of like, <laughs> no, <laughs> mom, go away. <laughs> and they, it turned out they didn't know how to do a lot of things. And talking while doing things is hard too, right? Like opening a jar, spreading things on bread, cutting, knowing what, where and when to put on certain ingredients. It was just, it was a jumbled mess, but it ended up being really successful and it was really fun. But I will warn you, we ended up making the same sandwich the entire time. My original goal was to make this really cool recipe book or cookbook for this group and pictures and be great. And we have all these things they can make at home. We never made it past tuna fish sandwich. So every session, how many sessions did you have? I want to say eight. In some of those, we went to a restaurant. Okay, that's fun. Yeah, we go to a restaurant, we order, you know, the restaurant where you can pay first. (laughs) Panera is a good one. Or we went to dinner and a play once. And my goal was to really expand that. And then COVID hit. And it's really hard to make therapists work for free. (laughs) And it was you and one other therapist and the eight? 
most, it was for two of us did most of it. And then I had some of our other therapists help, but really it was more to just kind of jump in when needed and then let them, and they did, they are, they started talking to each other. They helped each other out if they finished first, you know, there were some clashes with personalities, but it was really fun to see that because we don't see that very often. They don't have a chance to do that. Or if at school, private therapists like me don't see that. And then it reminded us, hey, the reason we had to make the same sandwich every time is because they wanted to. They wanted to master that sandwich. And we know this for our little ones, right? Like they like repetition. They watch the same movie over and over again. Um, Our adults do the same thing. Um, Now there's a bad side of that, but it was kind of nice to say, you know what? we can't push them here. This is not, my agenda isn't the right one. We're going to keep making that sandwich. I'm not going to force you to make pizza next time. And I think we do that in every facet of their life. They're on a slower speed and we have to kind of respect that within boundaries because we also have to push them. So it's, it's, it's an interesting balance. That is, that is. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's a great idea for so many of us to use. Okay. So back to speech clarity. You've mentioned that that's a priority for this population. So how do you focus speech clarity along with the other goals? Right, because there are a lot of goals. And this is kind of when I fight with insurance companies when they, you know, why do you need two sessions a week? Well, because I'm working on cognition, memory, language, speech, feeding, movement, social interactions. It really, that memory piece is really fun. It's coming more and more in the research showing us that really that is that short-term verbal memory. Remember executive functioning, right? All these things that we have a lot of data on. It's a little different in Down syndrome, but what we're seeing is the reason for lower MLUs, poor grammar, poor syntax. A lot of those things when they're little is kind of due to oral motor issues and the slowness of processing and executing. And as we get older, it becomes harder because we just didn't practice speech enough. And so we have to practice movement and we have to practice and act millions of times, you know, your 10,000 hours, but way more in speaking and in the ability to remember how to speak when I talk and to remember how to speak when I'm trying to learn new vocabulary and to remember how to speak when I have to say all these words at once. And so they're not really that separated. And because of that short-term memory or that executive functioning being poor, it directly affects our ability to focus on how to talk. And so if you had, if you and I had to think about it today, it would be nearly impossible. And so how do we get there? How do we improve speech clarity in a way that's going to work because it hasn't worked yet? I see older kids and you're like, why didn't it happen? It should have happened. Or in some, I guess it did happen to a degree, and then there was regression. They stopped practicing. They stopped going to speech therapy because they were in school and life was busy, and that's great. And then school ends, right? And so there's all these points in development where it feels like backing up, especially for a family who doesn't want to back up because they've worked hard. They're tired. And really all they've been told maybe throughout this process was it was their sounds that they need to work on, right? It's not the sounds. (laughs) It's so much more than that. 
And those more than that pieces are the ones that I'm really kind of focusing on that we can talk about. But it comes and goes and it changes. And that speech clarity piece, the reason I I kind of ditched everything else in my career for this is because no one else was doing it. Parents said, I want them to be understood by other people. I want them to be involved in society in every way possible. They never get it in many cases because we don't work on it because we're so language heavy that especially birth to three, we spend a heck of a lot of time doing all the talking, right? We give them a device. We might teach them that. We work on a lot of language and enriching their environment and all wonderful things. But if we don't have that practice piece, imagine doing that as an adult. It's going to be slower. And so how do we do that? That's kind of where I am right now. And we can talk about that if you want to. (laughs) Well, yes, we can go into that right now. (laughs) So when I say it's not our tick and it's not sounds, I'm sure that's part of it, right? There's there's some sounds they don't say right. They have a very different skeletal system and muscle system. We all know that piece of it and the breathing and all of those other things that kind of come into it. But as I started seeing more adults, I kid you not, I would sit here, stare at videos and audio and listen over and over. I'd close my eyes. I'd do something else. What is it about the signal that's messing up? And my current answer, and I think is the answer, are those kind of supra-segmental things. Voice, resonance, fluency, rate, loudness, and that prosody, the rhythm. The rhythm is off. They don't put the stress on the right stressed syllable. But then, I mean, that's in a word and then put that word into many words with grammar and syntax and that the music of their speech is not, it's almost like a dialect. It's different. And that is because of all of the physical things that are different with that extra chromosome. So how do we deal with this? What is that voice piece, the resonance piece? And the quick anatomy lesson is if you have a smaller nasal passage and you have smaller ear canals and you might have larger tonsils and adenoids when you were younger and maybe they're still big and I'm slower to move because I have dysarthria and low muscle tone, resonance is always going to be a little kind of plugged, right? We're always going to kind of have that. Sounds like I have a cold all the time because our nasal passage is smaller And I probably have a decent history of hearing loss on and off. And there's some really interesting stuff coming there because parents will say they've never had hearing loss, never had an ear infection, not once. But there's inflammation and there's fluid. And so usually if you combine that hearing plus all the physical stuff and a lack of practice, our kids have voice disorders and the voice research is wacky. Because it will, it will on when they measure it, it will, it will be one thing, but what we hear is not what it's measuring. And it's really strange. So you can read about that. But I started looking for, and my fluency background came back in. Okay, well, how do we get them to slow down, right? You can't just say say slower. It doesn't work with anyone. So I kind of brought in those elements from fluency. And then I really started to look at voice and there wasn't anything. So I started kind of stalking. LSVP, which is a Parkinson voice program, because when I, you know, I really kind of started looking at it, I was never trained in it. I, I don't have experience with adults with Parkinson's disease, but I would go and steal videos off of YouTube and I would use them and it worked. Just some continuous voicing, melodic intonation, fluency things like easy onset. How do we change rate? And when I found LSVT, I kind of 
bothered them for a few years about, you know, are you guys, have you thought about Down syndrome? Are you going to do anything? And it, they were at the time. They just hadn't announced it yet. So the second that came out, I was, I, I got the training with LSVT. And now I use it with our older, I use it with the little ones, but more with our older, well, not more, with both, all ages with this program was working because it addressed that piece. And it also beautifully went along with our cognition issues and part of that intellectual disability piece. It was simple. It was not complex. It's not answering questions. It doesn't require a lot of processing time for me to engage in it. It's highly repetitive, very frequent, and very intense. So we're talking 20 repetitions of saying, ah, going from there, which that alone is hard when you have to start three and low tone. So people with Down syndrome, and then I started reading, right? So people with Down syndrome, have, it requires two to three times the effort to go from silence to voice. So this is sort of why our kids push, they yell, they push all their air, their whole body goes into one word. If you do that, you don't have any air for the next word or the And then you can be abusive, right? So if you're slamming your vocal folds together just to start and your breathing is off, you're going to end up with also some voice disorders, right? (laughs) Because we have that hoarseness on top of hypernasality, on top of a jaw that might be moving too much. So we kind of get a lot of that going in. So this snowball started to build for me. And so those are the things that we're looking at now and having a lot of success with. It's not the Arctic. It's not MLU. If we can incorporate those principles within some of the other speech things that we do, that's where I'm seeing the most progress. And that's really exciting. That is very exciting. Just a follow up on that. When you have a client who, let's say, is 20 years old, who comes in, maybe you've seen him before, or maybe you have not, and they're having these issues. What is their own awareness of the issues and how do you teach awareness along with everything else? It's a really good question. That's probably a weekly Google search for me. They don't hear themselves. And I don't mean hearing as in, you know, can they hear themselves? They were never really taught to monitor their own speech, right? So here's a group of people who are highly unintelligible, but keep talking, right? They're speaking in the absence of success, right? So what is that? You know, you and I would shut down. We wouldn't talk anymore. It would be like being in a different country all the time. And so how do we get them to have better awareness? And so this, again, is where I ended up going back to my fluency days. And then I've also started to, with the help of one of my therapists, actually, who had this idea, who had a background in aphasia, she started kind of bringing some aphasia things back in. And that was really fun because there was a little bit of memory and processing kind of built in there. And so what does that look like kind of when we start? I kind of forgot your previous question. I'd get off on these tangents. Well, awareness, how, how are they aware and how do you teach that awareness? And is the awareness something that you are teaching every session? I do. It's kind of scary at first. So I have a client right now, so I'll tell you, how I'm doing this specifically with her is she has a really strange speech pattern. And even her parents will say she's almost zero intelligibility. I mean, it's low. 
And it's because of these weird speech patterns she has. She's not aware of them at all. So something we'll do with, with fluency is to show them when it isn't right. Either stop them right there and have them go, oh, I heard it again. Let's try that again. Or trying to imitate it somewhat. Oh, I heard this instead of this. And that's a scary thing to do because you don't want to hurt someone's feelings, right? But it works. We just have to be gentle. We have to use technology, which is kind of fun. You can now record and play back. You can do karaoke type. That's what I call it. Things with all these wonderful apps and teletherapy programs now that we have or materials that we have where you can replay it and listen to it or replay it and watch it. Or like you and I today, I I can talk to you and look at myself. That helps me be aware that I'm not moving my body too much. I'm just more aware of myself. And so if we can use some of those tools, kind of like a mirror, right? And repeating it back and letting them know what they sound like, and then getting it again. And so that idea of high repetition, think of your apraxia clients, think of your phasics, think of your fluency, severe fluency kids. What do we do? We practice something in high repetition using that technique until we're dang near 100% intelligible in that situation, right? So this was a shift for me going back to awareness was, do we make everything meaningful and wonderful for them? Because that's what they like and that's where they do better. Or do we do some of this repetition? Do we do some drill? Right? That's the dirty word. (laughs) (laughs) Our listeners can't see your face, but as you said, drill, it was a a drastic face. (laughs) Like, that's what I'm not supposed to do. That's what I dreadful want to do, right? It's not right. I hate it. Well, I was wrong. For this population, it is. It works. Even our adults, they like it. It's a refreshing change. They don't have to think as much. They like repetition. And so getting to a point where they can have a motor memory, if you will, they're more likely to use that pattern when they talk in areas we didn't even practice in, right? That's our dream as SLPs is carryover. And it's terrible for this population because they tend to learn contextually. So they're going to do it here, but not here. And they're not aware of that either, going back to awareness. But doing high repetition makes them aware of their speech. And it gives them confidence. I can do that one. Oh, I can do that. And that is exciting to see. It's funny because when I, you know, you guys can't see me on the podcast, but usually they'll kind of hunch and I'll see their foreheads, their noses most of the time. And after about maybe if it's intense, maybe a week, if it's not intense, maybe a month. And all of a sudden you start to see the head come up and then the shoulders go back and then smiles when you're doing something really boring. Right. (laughs) But the confidence came as the self-awareness came. Even if we're doing like messy eating tends to be a thing with our kids. And so sometimes I'll see people just for that. They have no idea. Parents are like, why do they have spaghetti in their hair? How does she have spaghetti in her back pocket? She has no idea what she's doing with her hands in terms of helping herself eat, right? So they don't have a good body awareness. Or hearing loss has prevented them from getting really good at listening to themselves. 
potentially. So there's a bunch of reasons there, but if we can make them aware of this is what good speech feels like, not sounds like for us, and a switch I had to make, because for me, it was all about what I heard in the signal, which really, for me, it's more about watching the signal, right? Watching what they're doing with their mouth. So this young lady I'm working with now, her, we're working on her name. No kidding. Her first name. And I have to talk to mom a lot because I think, you know, I'm always like, I'm not regressing with her skills. I know she knows her name. She's not saying you wouldn't know her name. Well, and that has a lot to do with confidence and that initial interaction. If you can't get past what is your name, you know, some listeners will, will, will stop there. Yep. Yep. They'll assume you don't, you're not smart and you're not capable or the way you look or the way you move or if your voice is really different, you know, I mean, there's so many, so much of that that goes into the social piece too, right? So how do we help them make friends? How do we do that? My opinion is that speech clarity is the basis for everything. I don't think many other people think that, but it really has been what I've seen as being the biggest roadblock. And you've helped so many. So I would say be confident in that. Because it, because it is working. And that's what evidence-based practice is about. You have evidence. So you talked about speech clarity, the super segmentals. Are there any other key treatment programs, you talked about LSBT, that you would like to mention here? There's a bunch that I kind of steal from. And I, I think that's maybe what makes it hard to talk about is that it, I, there's nowhere to go, right? It's not like you can go to the Down syndrome page and pick one. And so really, I've just kind of had to figure it out on my own. So really, that voice and resonance and fluency techniques, pretty much any of those might help you. So a lot of us that are doing teletherapy right now, by the way, which works really well for our people with Down syndrome, young and old, this is hard to convince people of. <laughs> and I've written about this, and I spoke at ASHA about this. I mean, you can find that stuff on my website. But what this does for them is it really focuses them. It's a visual medium and they can kind of get rid of everything that might distract them. And so working through a computer screen with teletherapy actually is one of those things that works better, especially if you're doing frequent sessions, short frequent sessions, like Apraxia Research says to do, that works the best for our kids. So I do 15 minute sessions multiple times a week because we can hit it hard with that motor planning repetition stuff, they don't have a chance to get nervous or angry or bored and it works really well. So what do your sessions look like? Where are your sessions going after those techniques that might work? So the reason or quick thing with LSVT, the reason it works is because when I use a loud voice, I can't repeat sounds very easily. I can't repeat words very easily. I can't be quiet, obviously, because it's loud, right? I can't go fast. Try to yell fast. It's hard. <laughs> it's so simply- I, I won't do that to our listeners right now, but I'm going to trust you on that one. And, and as soon as this podcast is over, I'm going to practice. I'm going to try that. Yeah, it doesn't work. So go after techniques that are simply incompatible with what you're trying to get them not to do. So yelling, being louder, doesn't allow you to have all those things we don't want. They don't imitate. They don't have self-awareness very well. So we'll whisper, can you say it just like me? Say it like this. Or we'll do a robot voice. 
or, you know, any princess voice for, you know, someone that like those, or we'll use a lot of visuals. So we'll have like, it sounds childish, but we'll I'll use a picture of a princess, for example, for a higher voice and a picture of Maui, big muscle guy cartoon as kind of that low voice. And so using that, bringing that visual piece into kind of an auditory signal, and that helps a ton. And so those programs, pretty much anything that you do meaningfully as well. So cooking is fun because it, it is meaningful and you can learn things. Talking about your interests, right? So that's always one of the first things I do with parents is ask what they are interested in. I don't care how old they are. And then I can use their personal interests in therapy. So they're more likely to stay with me and you can see their faces. They light up. They want to tell you about what they like. They want to tell you about their family. They might want to tell you about their pets, their favorite TV show, kind of like autism. You got to be careful, right? Because this can derail, but using pictures even that they send you instead of board maker pictures or instead of pictures you get online, we use a lot of PowerPoints, anything visual. And I send those home. I do a lot of recordings. So I embed recordings into my PowerPoint so they can listen to me, go home, listen to me, do their homework without mom. So can we get them to be independently responsible for their home practice? Do they have a schedule? Can they know when they see me next? Can they log in to Zoom by themselves? Can they reply to an answer in an email? Can they reply via a text? They should be able to do this at the adult level. Yes. Not many can. And with therapy, I know that there's a wide range, but what would your success rate be with those skills? Well, 100% because I make sure that we do them. The rate of success in terms of how quickly they get good at it, that's harder. And parents tend to fatigue. They fatigue fast on this because imagine, you you know, how you are with your child, right? Like, takes too long. I don't have time for this. And that's why therapy works because we don't have that with them like we do our own kids. But I make sure that they know how to do those things. Even if it's mom, them telling mom who uses her phone to text me back, who uses an email, doesn't have the, you know, can she, he or she follow, you know, how it fills in. I always forget that phrase, but it fills in as you type. It kind of predicts what you're going to say. And so we may have to start there. Google, I think we all heard about this euphonics program that they're trying to do to help Alexa and Siri understand people with Down syndrome or understand people with multiple disabilities. And so that is a super exciting one. It is. I mean, that could really lead to independent communication. We're all holding our fingers here. And so it's kind of a, it's kind of a more relaxed, more usable AAC system is kind of what we're going for. And can we use that in therapy, even with our little ones? Tell Siri, does she understand you? Most of the time, no, but it can also be very fun and very funny. Well, and great for awareness in a way that isn't going to hurt any, anyone's feelings too, because it's and theory, it's a, not understanding. Yeah, right. And it's appropriate. When's the last time you sat next to your best friend? Touch them. And you kept your relationship alive only because of that. We don't do that now. COVID sped that up, but friendships can be texting. They can be video chatting. Those are fun. I use Marco Polo, which is an app where you, it's a video message. So it's, you can talk to it, it records it, send it to your friend and they can play it back. It's not in real time. 
So any of those technologies that we use all the time can be used in therapy. And then we may even have to convince some caretakers or families, hey, they might need a phone. Right. That brings up another question. How often do you have uh, caretakers in the session with you? Always. In the beginning, sometimes we have to kick them out just to kind of get them to engage with us. But eventually, like if we're working on independence and I don't want them there, I'm always talking to them before or after the session, either by phone, email, or text. Here's what we did today. Here's what they need to practice. Here's what happened. And a lot of times they sit outside the door, which I love because every once in a while I'll see a mom stick her head. <laughs> like we do a lot of questions. They don't answer questions well, right? So what did you have for breakfast? Pancakes. And then I'll see. No, you didn't. No. <laughs> and so it's extremely important, just like with kids. But, you know, balance that with letting them feel that this is their time. This is their work on themselves. And so that that shift a little bit too, and that independence of doing your work, but doing it like us, right? Not doing it with a silly cartoon. I have a young lady right now who, if it has any cartoon looking ish, anything, she won't do it. And I'll ask her why, because that's for kids. Oh, good for her. Good for her. That's great. (laughs) A lot of times our adults still Right, right, right. We have to remember to get them out of that. Like, how many times have they watched Cinderella? They watch it every day. Okay, well, maybe we should watch more of a teeny show, right? Something a little more age appropriate. Well, we'll we'll kind of transfer that. So that's a big one for me on the side. I don't know if it's worth it or not, but it does concern me if we're really still watching the same thing when we were five that we are when we're 30. And so those ways to kind of engage them, make them aware, make them aware of their surroundings, because if we're isolated, we're going to come in. And so this during COVID, I think that's what we've seen is parents are complaining a lot or caretakers are complaining a lot that they've really kind of gone back in themselves. All they want to do is be in their room and listen to their music. That's the biggest one I hear or watch their shows on their iPad, or I've seen a lot of those physical routines reemerge. So like the self-stimming behaviors, because they feel good, and I can go into my own world. And then this bigger piece that I don't know much about yet, and it, it's really fascinating, but is that inner life they have. They have an inner dialogue, they have an inner replay system in their mind when they're bored. And when I first started noticing this, I grew up, my mom was a psych nurse, so I grew up around schizophrenic who are, you know, they're great. They're a lot of times hilarious. Well, it looked like that to me. <laughs> I was like, what is this? I hope it's not that because I haven't read anything about, you know, I was just like, ah, but it's that self-talk that they use to talk them into things, to rehearse kind of like you see in a little kid, but it stays and they're bored a lot. I mean, they're not talking, right? So they're listening to me do this. And so sometimes they're not with me at all. They're in their minds. And I can see it sometimes. Like the babies will sign songs while my, me and the mom talk, right? And you can see I'm signing. I'm like, she's doing it's busy spider right now. And if I notice that, we'll go and sing the song, right? I'll cut mom off. But our adults do the same thing and they'd rather stay there. And so we really have to pull them back into 
real life tasks. We have to try to figure out a way to make them interested in others. That's a real big task. And it's almost outside of our scope. But that self-awareness, I mean, that's kind of in that same camp is how do we make them interested in you? (laughs) I'll bring my dog in sometimes. I'll wear a silly hat. I'll do something weird. And a lot of times they won't say a thing. (laughs) Just as like, it's about me. This is what I'm doing. And a lot of times I'm here, I'm not even looking at you. And I might be having a very active life in my head at that time. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> that that is a challenge <laughs> and do you talk to them directly about that in therapy mm-hmm. yep so I'll kind of bring them back in I have someone who's really one of the more severe cases of this I've found so the second that she's not interacting with me because she doesn't like it yet um, and this was someone who did regress I could tell because she's here and she'll even mouth some of the things because she loves music. And it's usually about some of her favorite music shows, by the way. So I'll have to say her name several times and get her back here. Okay, listen, watch me. I need you to listen. Are you ready? I need you to listen. Now look at me when I say this. So it's kind of annoying, but it works. So you have to bring them back, remind them, remind them. And a lot of times she'll actually jump. She'll be like, oh, whew. Like she's I was in my own world. Yes. Yep. You brought me back. Oh, and then she'll say, sorry. <laughs> it is, it's cute. And because it's a behavior that looks like an avoidance behavior and it can be, but we need to be careful because maybe it wasn't right. She literally went off somewhere by herself in her mind and I had to bring her back. Yes. 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 Okay. Well, we are nearing in on our hour. So much to say. So we've talked a little bit about some roadblocks to successful communication. Is there anything else you wanted to mention as far as roadblocks with adults? I'll tell you what we're seeing here. And I think it might be similar because I've started to talk to therapists in other states, but here it's really hard for me to see them because I'm not a Medicare provider. Something that happens at adulthood where they go from being on a Medicaid system to a Medicare system. And if I'm not, here's how it seems to be attached. And if you're listening, please, this could be wrong. This is just what I'm gathering right now is that oftentimes that's a home health agency that they'll be getting services through. So either for nursing, PT, OT, that company that handles that we're being told must also handle the speech therapy coming in rather than having an outside source. So the biggest problem right now is, can they pay cash if we aren't either in network or a home health agency? And because I'm an independent private practice, I'm not a home health agency. I don't employ nurses. We're having trouble figuring out how to give therapy to this population in the amount they need outside of a family having to pay cash. And this, it breaks my heart because I've lost clients who really need it. <laughs> and parents will say, this is the first time. And even when I'm having some sessions that I think are terrible and I feel like I'm not having a breakthrough and I, I'm close to telling the mom she might want to find someone else, I often hear, well, this, this is the first time it's ever worked. Or this is the first time she's ever engaged. And then I can't see him anymore. So that's my biggest soapbox right now. And like we have a, an adult care clinic here that I think is supposed to be getting out of their experimental phase to see if they need it. 
but really they're not a help either because really the focus right now is on health, medical issues and longevity or, you know, just being healthy is the main focus. I don't save lives, right? Like seeing me is kind of an extra perk, if you will, at that age group. And so we don't have a lot of support. No one really even knows that maybe they should get speech or how do we make that known that it's extremely important? Because people will say it in conversation, but when it comes down to it, it's such a big area that it's scary. And how do we fund it? How do we fund it? And I'm sure you have some people who feel like, well, they've reached their plateau in, in high school or by 21, and they don't realize that these services are still needed. Yeah. And real quick, sorry. They don't trust us. I'm learning, and I've known this at younger ages. We don't have a good track record. Parents are done with us because I'm on a lot of these chats online, also on social media. I now don't respond because I'm not a parent of a child with Down syndrome, but I do it to keep my eye on what's actually going on. We haven't been successful in getting them to speak clearer ever. So, why in the world would they do it as an adult? Now we're starting to look at AAC or other modes of communication because we've tried that. I've even had a parent tell me, you know what, I'm sorry, but we've done this so many times and it never works. And and, and usually I say, I know, I know. <laughs> and that's why I do what I do because no one else seems to be doing it. And the reason I'm doing these podcasts and trying to write and speak more and be very busy is so that people can find something therapist? Can a therapist find a resource to use immediately? Still hard. Well, thank you. Thank you for doing everything that you are doing. We are actually over our hour. But on that note, I did want to ask you what special projects with either advocacy or education, what do you what do you have going on? I will be speaking. So I do have a class with speech therapy PD that you can watch. I will be speaking at this year's National Down Syndrome Convention. It's going to be all online again and not in Arizona like it was supposed to be. I'm one of the deep dive speakers, so I'll do a three-hour presentation there, mostly guided towards parents because it's the National Down Syndrome Association. But therapists are welcome to go to the conference and do any of that online. It's fairly cheap. And then I think I'm supposed to be doing some more classes for you guys. So some hour courses where we can kind of dive into each of these topics, like answering questions, for example, that's a huge area. It doesn't seem like it, but it is when you get in. And so I'm trying to do more and more of those. I have some that are recorded that you can purchase through different things. But if you go to my websites that are on the handout, there's some stuff in the blogs and there's some free things that you can go to to learn more about these things. And at the end of the handout, a lot of these resources that you can go to. So it's not a typical reference list, but somewhere where you can read the article read the website and and learn more about these topics and share those with your clients. Well, thank you. And thank you for your handout today. For those of you who haven't had a chance to look at it, it is very thorough and a great summary of what we've talked about and meandered about today. So Jennifer, thank you again for coming as a guest on Keys for SLPs and sharing Keys to Working with Adults with Down Syndrome. It was a pleasure to speak with you today. And so helpful to learn from your experience and insights and all your recommendations. So thank you. You're welcome. This is very fun for me. (laughs) As well as it is fun for me. So thank you very much. 
Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs for this episode and all podcasts offered by speechtherapypd.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines. Keep up the good work.